knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. The 1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Join Justin Townsend and the Harvesting Nature crew as they explore the world of cooking wild fish and game while sharing recipes, tips, tricks, and lessons learned from their pursuit of wild food. We sure hope you ate before the show, because you're going to leave hungry. This is the Wild Fish and Game Podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Harvesting Nature's Wild Fish and Game Podcast. you got your host here, Justin Townsend. And uh, today we've got a special guest for you. We've actually been chatting a little bit, getting to know him. Uh, so I'm excited to have a good conversation. But first up, uh, we'll go ahead and get our, our intros out of the way. So quick update on what's going on in my world. Uh, looking that antelope season for archery just opened here quickly uh, just a few days ago. So I will be full force into that coming this weekend. And, um, you know, then the season's roll. Uh, I was just talking with Alan, telling him I'm trying to get my my – feet under me uh, as far as uh, my plans for foraging and getting out and and trying to find some wild edibles uh, out and about as I'm going so gonna mash that together with uh, my hunting aspirations as well not to add any more complexity to it but you know it is what it is so um, outside of that uh, we completed our first class of our Harvesting Nature Supper Club, which is our online uh, cooking classes. So we did that uh, just yesterday. Or no, sorry, uh, two days ago, three days ago. It doesn't matter for you because you're listening in podcast time, uh, which is skewed from reality, but still very important. Uh, I taught a, a class making venison steak marsala, uh, had a few participants. So that class is live uh, on our website, you can go and purchase it for on-demand if you want to go through that recipe and uh, learn with me as I go through that. Uh, we have an exciting lineup from our other uh, Wild Game chefs uh, that will be running through different recipes this month, and we'll extend that into next month for sure. I think our plan is to keep rolling with it. Next month, we may offer some butchering uh, courses, some other recipes, some breakdowns, things like that. So uh, stick with us on that, and uh, please make sure that you're following that. Look for the details on the website. That's all under the Harvesting Nature Supper Club. It'll be under the Cooking Classes tab. Um, outside of that, we've got some updates for the Antler and Finn podcast, which is like your virtual uh, recipe uh, venue. So we basically take you through some of our top recipes step by step, item by item, line by line, all in a virtual uh, podcast manner. So you can hit pause and play as you go through each step, uh, narrated by yours truly. It's like audiobooks for recipes. Yeah, it's an audio cookbook, is exactly what it is. Uh, and then, uh, as always, you can buy us coffee if you'd like. Help keep us fueled on those uh, those late nights of podcast editing, recipe writing, and adventure planning. Those are always great to see pop in. Uh, I think we just had one a couple days ago where somebody bought us one $3 cup of coffee, which is great. Everything helps. And uh, aside from that, I think, uh, Corey, what updates you got for us? Been getting ready for the archery season here in Pennsylvania. Some moving stands, scouting, but it's getting to that time frame where i'm trying to stay out of the spots where i want to hunt so i'm not disturbing the deer so now shooting the bow shooting the broadheads making sure everything flies right so just getting all prepped for the season nice and when's when's your season first kick off 
Archery season opens the first Saturday in October, but our small game season starts in mid-September. So um, I use that time to take out the kids and shoot some squirrels and and have fun in the woods. Nice. And uh, what do you got going on over at the Ventures for Food podcast? We're always looking for new stories, new storytellers to tell their hunting and fishing stories. Every every hunter and angler has a story to tell. And if you have a good one, we want to hear from you. So email us at whatscookingatharvestingnature.com or shoot us a DM on, on Instagram or something. Get a hold of us and uh, we'll get you recorded and on the show. Yeah, we absolutely love to hear the stories. Uh, I actually recently just recorded one, so it was, uh, I think the ti- the title is uh, Bulls, Sharks, and Lions, Oh My, and it's a, a recount of my, my last trip down in the Florida Keys spearfishing for lionfish, uh, which we then took up to the BHA dinner and, and cooked up, so uh, some interesting encounters in that adventure, so definitely tune into that. Uh, but also too, I want to give a shout out to, uh, Allen company as always, uh, we've partnered with them for a number of years, so you can go over to them by Allen.com and use their coupon code harvest 10, uh, for 10% off your order at checkout. But, uh, Corey, if you don't have anything else, I think, uh, I'm, I'm ready to introduce our guest. Do it. All right. So our guest today started his culinary journey with mushrooms. And has uh, since blossomed into a career that went through many kitchens, restaurant, and leading him to become the Forager Chef. On his website, foragerchef.com, you can find anything from seasonal cooking to restaurant dishes, homestyle meals, nose-to-tail cooking, and so much more. He currently has the Forager Chef's book of flora recipes and techniques for edible plants from garden, field, and forest. Uh, that book's available on Amazon. But I would like to welcome... Alan Burgo to the podcast. Thanks for having me, Justin. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Uh, excited, you know, in the first few moments before we hit the record button, we got to chat a little bit and get to know you. Uh, but definitely want to uh, dig into what you're doing and uh, learn more about uh, everything you're involved in. So first off, for, for our listeners out there, can you kind of tell us where you're from and uh, your introduction to the outdoors? So I'm from I'm from Minnesota. I was but I was born in Wisconsin. I grew up in Minnesota and I never really spent a lot of time outside. Uh I lived on a farm, but I'd probably rather be inside or doing something with my friends. My introduction to the outside came when I was working in restaurants. So I started cooking when I was like 15 or 16 and when I went to college up in the Twin Cities. I had always been cooking as kind of my side gig, as just, you know, that was my job, how I made money. Uh, Eventually, I graduated from college and figured out I didn't want to sit in an office. (laughs) But I was at restaurants, and I started at, you know, crummy fast food restaurants, and I worked up into the best places I could possibly find. And just, you know, it takes a long time. Eventually, I got to places that were working with local food, and some of the some of the places, one of the places in particular uh, is called Heartland. We only worked with uh, ingredients from within 200 miles of Minnesota. Oh, wow. And that meant no olive oil, no citrus, you know, n- no no Italian Parmesan, nothing like that. Uh, so we worked with a lot of wild ingredients. Uh, the, during the season, people would bring stuff in. And I basically got spoon-fed, like, what all the best, the creme de la creme of everything in Minnesota and the Midwest was. I just got it brought to me. So before I went outside, I loved to play disc golf. And before I went out and started finding mushrooms playing disc golf, I already knew exactly what I was looking for. I'd tasted it, cooked it, been shown and trained how to work with these things in the kitchen. So the first thing I ever found was the chicken of the woods. And I just cleaned one the day beforehand in the kitchen, and I was out playing disc golf, and I saw one on a tree, and I said, the light the light went off, and I was like, okay, that is it. This hmm. is not some crazy, unattainable thing. Um, and I brought it home and ate it because I knew exactly what it was already. So I was kind of lucky because I had, I got to do speed learning and mm-hmm. speed culinary training on the job with wild food. 
and from there uh, at the place I was working at I got to write the menu every single day for the restaurant it was kind of a unique concept so whatever my station was I would we would write the menu new every single day so I started going out before work and trying to find things that I could put on the menu because as you know kitchens are super competitive and I wanted to be the best on the line I would be the best in the whole restaurant so that meant I needed to learn more so then I started buying all the literature I could and teaching myself more and more things and first it was only mushrooms because they were the the most expensive things we would buy and then you know sometimes you go out and you don't find mushrooms so I said okay what do I have to do to never go home empty-handed so that's kind of it in a nutshell yeah, that's a good strategy. I guess um, so the majority of my culinary experience either comes from from down south uh, in New Orleans or, or you know, on the West Coast or, or down in the Keys. And, and uh, you know, I, I never had anyone calling, offering any sort of, well, you would get like maybe uh, people grew fruit or brought fruit into you or something like that. But all the wild food as far as like seafood or things like that sort of had its own system. But what does it look like? to someone who's bringing in mushrooms uh, to a restaurant. Like, I, I, I haven't personally experienced that. I've heard it. You're not the first person I've heard it from of somebody to be like, oh, yeah, we brought in some, you know, so-and-so, my mushroom guy brought in a, you know, a couple, three, four, five pounds of, of whatever type of mushrooms. But how does that interaction generally play out? I think there's a, num- there's a number of different ways. Uh, it's really like finding a farmer that grows really good vegetables to find a good purveyor of wild food. It, you have to have some contacts. You got to know some people, and sometimes those people. It's different than going to like a farmer's market. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the guys that I knew the best, his name was Leon. He was a retired guy. Uh, you know, no one's really going to get rich. You're not going to get rich selling mushrooms unless you're like <laughs> cultivating them and selling a ton. Sure. Like sometimes people go out and they find a couple mushrooms. They're like, "Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna be rich." And then you'll be lucky to fill your gas tank. But this guy's name was Leon. Leon was retired and he bought himself a plane and he flew across the United States, went to different woods he knew, and then would harvest the mushrooms, bring them back to Minnesota, and sell them to whatever restaurant I was at at the time. Uh, so he he was a good guy until he sold us a batch of bitter bolites and then we didn't buy from anymore. Um, then there's all there's all kinds of people that'll harvest different things throughout the season. Most of the time people call will cold call you and they might show it up at the door. They might show up in a van, you know smelling like they haven't bathed in a couple I, days I and have some ask, really, like, really nice mushrooms. <laughs> would would you have somebody calling is like Hey man, I got some mushrooms I want to sell you. Like the first thing that comes into mind is just like somebody rolling through the back alley in like a blacked out panel van and just like opens up the back door and it's just like boxes and boxes of, of mushrooms. And they're like, yeah, you got to check these out. These are the top line. And sometimes it's like that. More often than not, it's just a person who got a nice haul. Uh, there, there are some, you know, when you find a good one, you try to keep them and treat them really well. Like I have a, a lady from the Ukraine. Uh, mm-hmm. the Eastern Europeans, they're like mushroom crazy. Oh, yeah. it, is, it is in their blood. They love mushrooms. They crave them. Uh, and they're really good at finding them. So Olina was her name, is her name, and she was super talented. She would bring me chanterelles. She'd bring, you know, 20 pounds of chanterelles at a time or porcinis or whatever it was. And they're all just meticulously cleaned and packed in between layers of fern leaves to, oh, wow. to keep them fresh. Yeah, and then I knew another guy uh, just from from Russia, Constantine. He was really sloppy, but he could pick different mushrooms. Like, he was comfortable with different species from th- different areas he was at. So, you know, I'd buy f- you buy from whoever will bring you a, a nice haul at a, at a reasonable price. You're going to have to explain what what happened to, to Leon a little bit better. You threw out a, a type of mushroom that I'm not familiar with. So can you expand on that a little bit? Okay, so uh, Porcini, basically, Leon brought us a bunch of bitter bolites. And a bolete, a Porcini is a bolete. Uh, a bolete is a mushroom that has pores underneath the cap instead of gills. Mm-hmm. And they're also known as the fleshy poured mushrooms. And there's a whole bunch of different really, really good species here in North America and around the world. Uh, the Porcini are just one of many, many, many different kinds that you could pick. 
uh, a lookalike of the porcini it is some of them are very very bitter and it would probably be a different uh, it's a different uh, kind of group underneath inside of Boletus you have Telopolis, Luxinum, uh, Boletus and Swillus and Telopolis are known for being very very bitter so it is an amateur mistake to bring bitter Boletes to a chef because you can taste a Bolete and just spit it out mm -hmm. and see, oh, this tastes good or this tastes bitter. And if it tastes bitter, you don't harvest them. You throw them back in the woods. Um, so it's really an amateur mistake, but they also taste awful. And if you, say, put them in, like, a 10-gallon batch of tomato sauce, you'd have to chuck the whole shebang. Oh. So it's really just a, it's an amateur mistake is being careless. And, yeah, you don't, uh, don't want to do business with somebody like that. Mm. That's fair. Gotcha. Yeah, I can see it. Uh, I had sense. the same. I had the same question, Corey. So thanks for thanks for asking. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations, and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com We've kind of laid the foundation as far as how you got your start uh, foraging wild edibles. But I guess um, when you look at, at wild edibles and you look at from a restaurant, from a culinary standpoint, like, what do you think the scope are people excited by more exotic uh edibles or or i guess less seen in restaurants like did people specifically come to come to your places of work to try the things the very unique things you were putting forth or do you think people recognized it on the menu or or didn't so it's a, that's a good question and it's a kind of a mixed bag so on one hand people will go weed their gardens and they will throw away purslane and lamb's quarters and nettles uh on the other hand when i was when i would be doing the purchasing at one of the places that i worked at or myself as the chef uh i will pay more for nettles or purslane or lamb's quarter than i would for the best type of heirloom lettuce per pound hmm. uh, these are luxury goods and you will pay you'll absolutely pay anywhere from 10 to 15 dollars a pound for any of those plants that i mentioned Wow. Uh, if you put them, a good example is milkweed. So mm -hmm. if you put milkweed on a menu, some people might say, oh, it's milkweed. Oh, and it's poisonous. Oh, but it's also anything with the name weed in it. Uh, the people I have found, it helps to use a little bit of a creative license. So milkweed pods, I don't call them milkweed pods on a menu. I just call them wild okra. And then when someone asks... Then I tell them I, will, I would come out to the dining room to the table and explain to them that they were eating milkweed pots, or I'd oh, have the yeah. servers explain it to them. And you know, when you when you phrase something just a little bit differently, or you're playful with something a little bit on the menu, people, it, you if you want to frame something as a luxury good, like wild plants, they were brought to me. I learned them as a luxury good. I when the Swedish ambassador came and I cooked for him. He requested nettles on the menu because it's a it's a uh, it's a Scandinavian tradition. You know mm -hmm. they make nasal nasal sopa. Um, so I only knew of wild plants as a luxury good, and I wanted to show the populace. I wanted to show you know average diners, any diner, that wild greens are a luxury good. This is something delicious. It's growing right outside. You can come to this restaurant, and I will charge you a bunch of money for it. But you can also go outside and get it yourself. You know, that's awesome. I think that, yeah, that's cool. Cause it, it definitely brings about a connection that, that people, you know, they may stroll into the restaurant, 
uh, with whatever premonitions they may have and then get excited by something on the menu and it kind of leads them down this path to sort of explore uh, wild edibles on their own, which is great. Yeah, and I mean, like, as a, as a chef, working with ingredients that I had never worked before, uh, it's like catnip, you know? Mm-hmm. That's that's all a chef wants to do. All you want to do is cook with new, fun things. Yeah. It, you know, I started learning about wild edibles about, I don't know, t- 10 years into my uh, culinary uh, career, and I already knew how to cook most things. I can cook a steak to temp. I can cook 50 steaks to temp, cooking them at the same time. I can do the same thing with salads, and you know, and just about every darn thing you can throw at me. I work the pastry station, whatever. Do I do the butchery program? I've never cooked a nettle, you know. So it's exciting, and I think if you if you frame things in an exciting and an exciting way to people people will take it as that it's and it's all about how what the chef is excited about so if you're excited about eating weeds and funky cool wild mushrooms so will the diners diners will be too when it adds you know and i think that most chefs get excited when you start connecting food to stories and you're able to to go beyond the plate to sort of tell the tell the tale or tell the adventure you know and i i think that wild animals lend to that very very well which is so cool to me um, I wish, uh, in, in my, my culinary career, I had, I had grown more close or had the opportunity to, to seek it out. So it's pretty awesome. Um, so do you, do you also hunt and fish? I know we touched on it a little bit, uh, in, in addition to your foraging or are they simultaneous? So hunting and fishing is I mean you gotta think you gotta think okay first and foremost I'm a chef you know I spent I spent 15 years behind the stove almost like every single working day of the week and the shifts are really long and they do they are not kind to your social life or <laughs> having other hobbies that are not you know drinking after work or hanging out with your with other employees or going home and reading cookbooks and writing about what I was doing like like I was doing. So hunting and fishing, I have big game hunters in my family that mm-hmm. I'm now getting to connect with, but I I it's a skill that I never uh that I never honed uh through most of my most of my young life. I'm a terrible shot with a gun, but what I excel at and what my I have a lot of friends who are hunters and I'll go with them sometimes. I'll, I'll hunt rabbits. I'll hunt squirrels, mostly small game, uh, the pigeons, uh, the woodcock, uh, peacock. Um, I, I like different funky things. I'm the butcher. So mm-hmm. I was trained as a butcher uh, in you know, most of my restaurants. We just use whole animals. The restaurants I was trained in is whole animals. So I worked in the butchery program too. I also specialize in awful, um, you know, cooking with organ meats. So th- my friends that I have are very talented at bringing down animals at whatever, whatever it may be at the moment. And then my, my favorite part is cutting them up. There, nice. There's just about nothing I like more than stringing something up on a gamble and seeing how fast I can skin a deer and seeing that is where the creative process for me really comes about, about is when I am taking the knife to the carcass and seeing what is the different cut I want to work on this year uh, what do I want to do this year that I haven't done before? Is there a different way that people cut an animal around mm-hmm. the world that I haven't tried? Um, or or is there a new creative way that I can work with a cut that I've worked with before and do something new with it? So, I mean, last year, I really wanted to focus on different parts of venison, so I tried to master cooking venison trotters. Oh, and yeah. That was a lot of fun. All right. So now now since you opened that, what what's your experience with venison trotters? Oh, they're excellent. Um, so you have to, I have a video of it online and I actually, I leave the hooves on. Okay. So I was inspired by my friend. She's, her name's Linda Black Elk. She's a Native American ethnobotanist on the Standing Rock Reservation in okay. uh, South Dakota. Yeah, yeah. And they harvest buffalo. And one of the things they make is a, a soup made of a scrubbed and cleaned hoof of a buffalo. Okay. And it's like, the thing is like this big. Yes, right. it's large. And they and they cook the sucker in a crock pot until it's like falling apart. And then the the crazy part is after that thing's falling apart, they take a spoon and they will hollow out 
the inside of the hoof. Okay. And that is part of what goes into the soup. So it is like, you think about bone broth. So like, this is like bone broth on steroids. Oh, man. I and it's like and so I had, and gelatinous I, and oh, delicious. Yes. It, it, it's sticky, icky goodness. But I didn't have a buffalo. So I thought, okay, I know I'm going to have like 50 deer feet this year. So I could probably do something with them uh, just because I'll be cutting, up, cutting them up for my friends. Yeah. So I started saving them and playing around with them. So what I do is I cut them off at the kind of at the at the knee joint, and then I'll peel them, and it t- it takes a little time, and then I just kind of trim around the hoof and cut into the soft part of the hoof so there's no fur, and then I clean them really well. You know, I give them a scrub, and then and I, I clean them with warm water too because it helps release anything that's on there, and mm-hmm. then I'll cook them. Then I'll cook them in a crock pot. Uh, I'll cut them with a saw down into manageable pieces so they'll fit into something because they're a little bit long. And after that, it looks like you put the deer trotters into a pot and it looks like there is nothing on them. And then you cook it two hours later. It's like, oh my God, where did all this meat come from? (laughs) And and I will clarify here, it is somewhere in between in a land of meat and collagen, but Uh it is good. So... Uh, my Lakota friends would probably just put the whole like kind of like stringy thing in, into the soup. I chop it up, I mince it, okay, and yeah. I do all kinds of stuff with it. So I'll take it. I could you can make like head cheese with shank, oh, wow. with, like smoked shank meat. Oh the, yeah, that you reduce that broth down and it's like a super ball, but it, like really? a really but like a really good one. Oh yeah, I got a whole I got a like I said I got the whole video that kind of illustrates that. Uh, but my favorite part was you take a spoon and you go inside the deer hoof and there is a nugget of meat behind this little bone. Also, the deer feet bones make great dice after you bleach them. And <laughs> there's a nugget of meat that is like this succulent little morsel that's like half meat and half fat inside of like the toenail. And it's the, one of the best parts of meat that I've had on a deer. I tell you what. Really? Yeah. Oh, man. I'm gonna have to try this. You, That's pretty cool. It's so uh, it, it's so unique. I don't think I've ever heard of it, and I would I would bargain to say that if a person wanted to prepare this dish, that you could probably wander around your friends' houses as they uh, as they process deer and be like, "I'll take those deer hooves right there. Don't toss them <laughs> to the dog. I'll take them." And uh, and just smile as they laugh at you. Yeah, right. Don't pass judgment on me for my my deer hoof <laughs> affinity. Corey, what do you think? I don't know. You you get a lot of deer up there in Pennsylvania. That that's definitely interesting. I'm not sure I'm brave enough to try it. I think you could do it. We'll we'll uh for anybody interested, we'll post the link to that video in our show notes. That way you can uh you can click on that and see see Alan's method. I'm I'm curious to I'm going to have to go research. I'm I'm excited uh about this cuz uh why not? Um could could you do it with an antelope? Since your oh, uh, it's your any, antelope anything. season, all all I did was take old French recipes for pig feet and just apply or sheep feet and apply it to deer. And one of the coolest things is I t- I take all the meat and the collagen and mince it. Mm-hmm. You put it into a little tray and chill it, and it turns rock hard. You cut it into cubes. You bread it in flour, egg, breadcrumbs, and then you deep fry it, and it's like a gooey venison uh, tater tot. <laughs> wow, that blows my mind. Yeah, that's awesome. It's, I don't know. I'm thinking a, a chroma squee. Chroma squee. Nice. I love how those the old the old French recipes translate so well over in, into wild game. Like it's a uh, you know part of it is they they that's what they were working with there, but also too it's they work with the the odd bits that a lot of people uh, weren't working with at the time. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking about elk too. Now that it's on, you talk about like the Buffalo and I'm like, next step down from Buffalo is elk. I mean, why not? Who's going to keep the elk trotters? This guy. (laughs) So, um, I don't know, Corey, it's your, your favorite question. Uh, if you want to ask Alan. Yes. I, I like to ask everybody what they have in their freezer at the moment. So what's in your fridge or freezer that you've foraged or, or hunted or fished for. 
Oh, that's a good question because I I just moved everything I had kind of from my girlfriend. I had my stuff in my girlfriend's freezer, stuff in my apartment freezer, and now it's all in the mothership. So I just had a 40 cubic foot commercial freezer <laughs> uh, brought to my garage that I'm uh, I'm rigging up my garage. I just had the floor sealed with epoxy uh, as a commercial kitchen. So yeah, you know, it's got the heated floors and all that stuff, but in that freezer i don't exactly know what's in like the house freezer it's so small i'm like ugh i could never even use this the regular <laughs> freezer ugh it's like it's useless i can't even do anything with this there's a couple fun things in there but i'll tell you that the only thing i put in my freezer so far right now is uh 2 days ago i harvested 50 pounds of wheat lacoche so i just uh froze all that on trays and then I vacuum sealed it all and that's the only thing that is in my freezer right now oh nice <laughs> it's a big a lot you got a lot of space you're gonna have a, a busy season <laughs> yeah no we I was at my friend's farm by mill by Milwaukee and he is the only person I know who's uh commercially uh, growing wheat lacoche so we harvested about 700 years and every single ear is sold, and he is sold out for the next two years as it stands. Oh, wow. yeah. And for those people who don't know, uh, wheat lacoche is uh, Aztec for corn smut. That's what, yeah. I think that was the question both Corey and I were going to get into. What it, what exactly is it? <laughs> I have it in the notes for later on in the uh, in the show, but since we're already talking about it. So that's corn smut. And... My friend actually just sent me a picture. He's grown some corn in his garden, and he asked me if I wanted it. And I don't know what to do with it, but what is it? Where do you find it, and what do you do with it? Well, so it's this is a Latin American tradition. Like the Aztecs, they would injure their corn and make it come because they liked it so much. So it's a mushroom that grows on corn, and it's when corn gets, how do you find it? It is, you're looking for areas, just like with a lot of uh, the wild plants and things like that, not necessarily mushrooms, uh, sometimes mushrooms, if they're like wood decomposing sap robes or parasites or something, like if a tree gets injured, you can get a chicken of the woods. Uh, like if it gets cut or if there's really strong hail with corn, it's the same thing. So my dad's a corn and soybean farmer and when he has a hailstorm or when the deer come to nibble on the cobs or when there's a flood, all of those sorts of disturbances will injure the corn and make them susceptible to Utsilagomatus, which is the corn smut fungus. And it'll get in there, and each kernel turns into like a gigantic kernel that kind of tastes like mushroom. And it sure. is some weird, funky stuff. And a lot, most people, when they think of corn smut, they think of like some kind of like black, gooey, like awful looking mm -hmm. stuff. And that, that's not it. Like, if you look at a rotten potato, those look like shit too. You know, you're not going to eat that. So it's you, you. You have to find it when it is nice and plump and preferably gray. But that being said, when the kernels are nice and gray and firm, they're edible. But they are also edible when they are slimy and black. And people in Latin America will harvest them like that. It's actually it's not. Uh, there's an there's an analogy in mushroom world, uh, as my world kind of is. Uh, shaggy mane mushrooms they mm -hmm. will turn black and kind of get inky and that is not a basically it's not a statement about their edibility they're still edible that blackening and turning to inky muck is a it's an enzymatic process as opposed to bacterial decomposition so okay. it's you you heat it and cook it and you can eat it so like people in latin america they might take a matate which is like a big stone like rolling pin and they'll take the the gooey wheat lacoche, the good like firm wheat lacoche, some stuff in between, a couple wet kernels, and they'll mash it all to a black paste. And then they cook that with a bunch of onions and garlic and tomatoes and cook it all down till it's nice and thick. And then you eat it as a meat substitute with warm tortillas. And it's really good. Oh, wow. But it does sound good. And I would imagine that once you mix it all together that you're going to lose that the kind of ooey gooey sliminess that you would think of, but it's just the yeah. initial thought. Yeah, so that's what's in my fridge. Freezer, rather. <laughs> 50, 50 pounds of corn smut. 
definitely doesn't look very appetizing. I guess the real question is, Corey, are you going to get it? Are you going to get it from your friend? Well, it was, I think it was only one one ear, so I don't know. Is it, can, what can you do with one one ear of corn smut? Not too much. <laughs> Appetizers. <laughs> there you go. Well, so as, as we look at that, and this is a good this is a good transition point. Um, we're kind of at the end of summer now. What what are things that we should be forging for? What are things that we should be looking for? Or what are you forging for as well? Yeah. Okay. So, end of summer. This is a really cool time. Uh, in the middle of summer, at least where I am up here in the Midwest, it's going to be really hot, right? So, mm-hmm. what happens when it gets hot? Most of the wild, like green leafy plants, those plants have been gone since May. So they've all gone to seed. The nettles have all gone gone to seed. The sochan, the watercress, uh, cow parsnip, Virginia water leaf, the, all of that stuff is all gone to seed. Once the heat of summer dies, it's like immediately, like somebody turns on a light switch. Once the heat of summer breaks and you start getting some cool nights, the wild greens come back. And a lot of times they're going to come back with like a slightly different looking morphology, like the way that they look, the shape. Mm-hmm. Or uh, like Sochan, it's a red becula cineata. It's uh, related to black-eyed Susan. And it's the one of the basically the traditional green harvested by the Cherokee in the American South. Um, so it's a great plant to grow in the garden, really easy plant to grow. And most of the, most of the leaves are going to be growing on the flower stalk, kind of as the plant grows up, and it looks like kind of little sunflowers. Okay. In Once the heat of summer dies, it makes gigantic leaves out of the base. They're called basil leaves, and those are the best leaves of the whole year. So you're also going to get brand-new nettles, brand-new watercress, uh, brand-new lamb's quarter, which you can also get if you mow it down. You'll keep forcing new growth. But you're going to get new, new, tender, young growth of all kinds of different leafy greens. But what I'm really looking for in the fall is I'm checking for nuts. I'm going to see what kind of nuts I'm going to get this year because the nut, all the different, all the nut trees that I kind of focus on, like shagbark hickories, black walnuts, and butternuts, and acorns, their masting cycles may or may not overlap. So, for example, last year was kind of a decent. It was, eh, kind of a bad year for black walnuts because the we had this really bad cold snap in the spring and I think it kind of messed up the pollination cycle or something so there's not a lot of black walnuts which is important for me because I may harvest 400 pounds of them a year because I work wow. with a distillery to make a, we make about a thousand bottles of uh, liqueurs flavored with herbs and things that I pick every year and we, we ship it across the country so I harvested at least 400 pounds of unripe black walnuts this year so the masting cycle is like actually important for me it, at multiple different times in the year. So last year was an okay year for black walnuts. This year was a great for, year for black walnuts. This year, also, I have not seen butternuts for the last two years, and now, finally, my butternut trees are masting, so I'm going to get a crop of butternuts this year. Uh, hopefully, I will. last year was an off year for shagbark hickories, so I'll also be going, when my friends are going to scout for deer season, I am probably going to with my binoculars to look up in the trees and see how many shagbark hickory nuts I can see on a branch and then see, okay, can I get 30 gallons of nuts from a single tree? Is it, or is it, or is it going to be a light year? And then I'm planning on my nut harvest. And also that falls when the mushrooms are bumping. So I'm going to all my mushroom spots too. We, we have a lot of, I have a lot of shagbark hickories here and I look for them because if you you find a shagbark hickory, you find squirrels, and I, I like to go squirrel hunting. But oh, absolutely. What are you uh, What are you doing with with the shagbark hickory nuts? Um, so th- with the shagbarks, uh, this is this is pretty cool. I I have a cracker for them that uh, the cracker I talked about with the black walnuts and the butternuts. Yeah. That one will work with shagbarks, but I don't like cracking and picking nuts out of shagbark hickories at all. I don't. I don't like it at all. I, th- I. I think butternuts and black walnuts are a lot easier. Um, what I do is I do the Native American technique, and there's actually a method, a walkthrough of how to do this in the book. And it's a Native American technique. You take the nuts, you crack them. You know, after they're cured and dried, and you pick them and pick the holes off and everything. You take the nuts, crack them to make sure that you don't have a single stale nut in there, because one stale nut can mess up the whole thing. And then traditionally, they would put them in something called a butagan, which is uh, basically a hollowed out tree trunk. Uh, 
typically made from a uh, type of birch. Uh, and because the birch won't split, maybe the, they might use slippery elm too, I don't know. And then it's kind of hollowed out from burning with embers, so it's like a big mortar and pestle. And then you use a pestle that's the size of a boat oar, and you bash the nuts Found into it, yeah. a paste with the shell and the meat all together, and then you end up with this kind of sticky paste of nuts and shell that you can make into a ball. And people give these balls as a gift. And you take that ball of nut paste with shells in it, you put it in a bunch of water, and then you bring it to a simmer, you stir it for about 30 minutes, and then you stop stirring it, you turn the heat off, and you wait like 30 seconds. And then, so all the shells have a, a, a heavier weight than the nut meats, so they all sink. And then you ladle off the fresh nut milk, and you season it with maple syrup and a pinch of cinnamon, and that's like the original original nut milk that tastes like concentrated hickory pecan. Oh, it's, there's nothing like oh, it when the fresh awesome. crack. Oh, it's so good. And you can cook stuff in it. You can cook rice in it. You can make sauces out of it. It's just, I make desserts out of it, like a, a hickory nut rice pudding based on this Native American technique called kanachi. Mm-hmm. And it it's it's ridiculous. It's like the strongest pecan. If you like pecans, it's like pecan crack. It's there's nothing like it. I do. Oh man, we we do uh you know, we have one of those uh contraptions that you make the nut milk with. You put the water and you put the nuts in there and it kind of does some whizzing and blending and you end up with nut milk. But uh we've been using a lot of pecan milk lately and man, I I would not necessarily I would prefer to try it kind of the not as much the traditional way, but uh in a way similar to that and simmer it and uh yeah, I'm simmer, excited. simmer it. It'll be good. Yeah. Ooh, that sounds good too. Cause I like uh, growing up as a kid, we would make uh, oftentimes for like breakfast, you'd take uh, milk and put in uh, rice with cinnamon and sugar, and that was kind of like you ate that as you would kind of like a porridge. And to me, that uh, almost like um, oh gosh, what do you call it? It's like a drink you get in uh, Latin American restaurants, like taco shops. Oh, my mind is blanking. Ugh. with the cinnamon and rice milk. Um, yeah, I'm drawing a blank. Horchata? Yeah, horchata. There you go. It's like horchata, so that reminds me of that. But I'm now picturing a more like hickory, pecan like version of horchata that I would be drinking, which sounds magical. Yeah, another really cool one that we'll be looking for in the fall is uh, I go with my buddy Sam Thayer. And Sam Thayer is kind of like my mentor, and he's mm-hmm. probably the greatest forager in North America. He lives about an hour away from me in uh, Wisconsin. And we actually go and we harvest. Uh, the, I live at the tip, tip top, kind of right outside the top range of shagbark hickories. But what we do have is bitternut hickory. And bitternut hickory, most of my forester friends are like, do you like that tree? The tree is garbage. And it kind of is. But it really, it actually isn't. So Sam and I will go out and harvest as many bitternut hickory nuts as we can. And the nuts are bitter. They're bitter. They taste terrible. Uh, but they have a thin shell. So okay. remember talking about the Native Americans bashing up all those uh, shagbark hickories. Yeah. They used to do the same thing with the bitternut hickories, and they'd boil them in water, and then they'd see that when they boil them, a layer of oil would come to the top. And this is like a 2,000-year-old process, and the tannins in the, that make the nuts bitter are not fat-soluble, so you can it would be a non-animal fat source from boiled smashed nuts so what sam does is sam puts them through a super expensive olive oil press and he actually presses a commercial oil from them out of bitternut hickories that tastes like pecans that you can buy on his website foragersharvest.com and it's super cool he does the same thing with acorns and acorns kind of taste like hazelnuts uh it's it's really it's really just incredible i mean he he paid somebody to harvest half a ton of black oak acorns, which are like this big, last oh, year. Wow. It, Tiny. Yeah. Ha- half a ton of acorns. That's a huge hand. amount. This is a huge <laughs> amount. And then he cracks them in this rotary cracker, and he puts them through an olive oil press, and he sells that oil online. It's incredible. So, that's but that's cool, enough. I'll, I'll help him. I'll help him harvest nuts. Um, my girlfriend's farm that I live on has a lot of bitternut hickories, so we'll do that too. So uh, I was going to ask, you mentioned before the tannins that make the the bitter nuts bitter. Are they 
similar in the tannins that that in acorns as well because i know as you're processing yes. acorns there's a process to remove those tannins uh from the acorns uh so same the as far as culinary purposes are concerned it they're the same yeah but yeah okay. and like i would assume i would assume you could leach bitternuts too but i wouldn't even bother because acorns are so widely available and when you mm-hmm. crack them you get two perfect halves yeah. Uh, instead of the bitternut, it's kind of you know it's all crenulated inside the shell there. Nice. I wonder if uh, if if we get the either the two hickories down here in Colorado. I don't know. I'm not as familiar with the terrain here, so. Hmm. Um, we did. So. Corey has a note in here about foraging for invasives. Um. I'm guessing invasive plants. Um, do you do any of that? Are you, are you in, involved in that aspect? Absolutely. I would say that the vast majority, I, I would struggle to find a forager that I know that does not harvest invasives uh, because invasives are, they are so widely available. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they're so widely available and you can harvest as much of them as you would ever want and you would never make a dent in their population. I mean, common nettles, these are an invasive species. Uh, watercress, we actually need to remove watercress from our pond here uh, at my girlfriend's farm. We have a pond and everyone's always like, oh, it's so much watercress, it's great. It's like, absolutely. And I eat pounds and pounds and pounds and pounds of it whenever I can. But if we let it get to a certain point, it's also going to crowd out the cutleaf water parsnip, which is actually a native species, and that's not good, you know. Yep. So, I, I absolutely I harvest uh, I harvest native plants. Uh, I harvest plenty of invasive non-native plants. Um, it kind of just depends on what part of the season is it I'm in. Um, in summer, I would say when I hunt things around gardens, because gardens, when you disturb any any land, it's really good for seed germination, and that's where you're going to see a, a lot of wild edibles is just around your garden, and most of those, the vast majority, are going to be non-native invasive plants. Why? Why do you? What do you think that is? is just, uh, they're because the first they're to come in. Uh, they're just so they're so well adapted mm-hmm. to to being here they had they haven't found like a plant that can outcompete them yet like gallinsoga parviflora uh is or guascus as it's called in in latin america part of the national dish of colombia is a crazy invasive insanely aggressive plant um like it, it's it'll kill everything hmm. so those are things uh do, do you have some of those topics listed out in, in your book as far as identifying any invasives? Uh, the, the, so the, my book isn't like an ID. It's not like sure. a like a field guide because I could never write anything that would be as good as what Sam Thayer writes. So okay. it's more of like a culinary companion. So I mention them. I, I don't uh, discriminate or uh, differentiate between things that are native or, or uh, non-native in the United States. Because my book is released uh, in Britain, in Eastern Europe, in America. Uh, so it, I, I speak to a very broad audience. So what's invasive for me may not necessarily be invasive for them. So I just kind of cover plants that are really good to eat, that are, that, are, that are typically wild. I can appreciate that <laughs> for sure. Um, so someone like me getting into it... Uh, foraging for mushrooms can be kind of uh, intimidating when you start talking about like misidentification uh what are some tips and resources uh you mentioned your your mentor uh, who has some great resources on his website which i was actually just looking at but uh where's a good place for people to start if they want to get into it yeah i mean people think mushrooms are dangerous and you know technically eating a burger and getting E. coli is too, or handling a <laughs> rabbit wrong and getting tularemia is too. Uh, that we, we have like a kind of fungophobic, uh, fungophobic society uh, that Western society kind of has uh, that you, you don't see in many, many other countries around the world. 
it is identifying mushrooms is a learned skill like anything else there's so many resources though one of the best resources is if you're on Facebook um, just look for mushroom group the state that I live in and type that into Facebook and look for a group and I have one friend here in Minnesota who is an administrator for over 300 mushroom identification groups around the world on oh, Facebook. Oh, wow. 300. Yeah. So there's a, there's a ton of mushroom groups, and I guarantee you there is a mushroom group on Facebook or a foraging group on Facebook that is specialized to your state, if not your state, then to a specific part of your state as there are in Minnesota. Like we have like 15 different groups for foraging and mushrooms or mu foraging and mushrooms combined or separated in Minnesota alone. So the groups are out there and you know, you don't have to post anything, but seeing what people are picking will yep. show you, this is where I live. This is what people are picking. This is what people are valuing. This is what I should be looking for. And it doesn't cost you anything. And it's like having eyes in the field for you. Uh, field guides are really good. But it's, it is a big leap of faith to look at something on a page and then say, okay, I think this is it. I'm going to put this inside my body. That, that's a leap of faith. And it can, it can help to have like real live people or experts that can say, hey, this is exactly what you think it is and you mm -hmm. can eat it. And, you know, they're not going to like take credit if you poison yourself or something. You know, you need to be sure of what you're doing. Uh, but that... There, it's a multi-step process. Identification is like, I don't just use one tool. Um, mm -hmm. I have expert friends that I contact. I have friends on Facebook that I might ask. I have friends around the world that will harvest mushrooms that I might ask. So you want to ask, you know, you want to ask different resources that you have. Consult the field guide. Consult the Facebook group um, or a specialized Facebook group that is not only for your region, like there's chanterelles across America. That's a group on Facebook specifically for only chanterelles. You know, I think oh, we wow. probably have like 13 different species here. I think I've eaten about eight, you know, and that's just in, that's just in North America. So it's just, this, you can go as deep as you want to go. Um, but going out with someone in the field is the best way to learn. That being said, it's a lot easier than plants, than mushrooms, because mushrooms don't always come up. Uh, but your local mycological society is also another good resource. And Michael Kuo's 100 Edible Mushrooms is a great guide. Uh, that one's got a lot, a lot of pictures, and it's a little bit smaller. The best, the kind of, what people will say is like the Bible is David Aurora Mushrooms Demystified is also another good book. Those are two good, okay, good resources. I did, uh, when I got out to Colorado, I, I joined uh, was the Colorado Mycological Society's Facebook group. And then since then, I found like four other Facebooks group. And I think the coolest thing that stands out to me most around here is, you know, we have a lot of varying elevation in Colorado. And so people will post what they yeah. harvested and as well as the the elevation they're at, because people are still harvesting morel mushrooms here at various elevations, whereas in other parts of the country they're not. So yeah, that's it, that blows my mind. Yeah, it, it was so cool. I was seeing people, and I was like, "Wait a minute! Like, we're in August. Like, they're like, yeah, you know, it's uh, you know, nine thousand feet." And I'm like, "Oh well, I guess that kind of makes sense." So, um, but no, that's cool. I I do want to touch on uh this is such an awesome conversation. I'm learning a lot. Um, but I want to touch on a couple of the recipes and, um, I think it would be appropriate. Maybe Corey for this first one, uh, this is kind of what, what led you to reach out to Alan, if I'm not correct. So do you want to kind of talk about this one? Yeah. Well, shout out to Evie at outdoor news for putting me in contact with Alan. Cause this, I was on taste of the wild on outdoor news and I saw this, uh, what is it? Sesame Sesame baked chicken of the woods mushrooms that Alan created and uh I was like I need to talk to that guy. So Evie uh put me in touch with you and here we are. So um if uh yeah, just run run down this recipe, the inspiration, the recipe development. Yeah, so this is it's based on my family's 
favorite way to cook chicken. Like whenever I had a birthday or whenever he had like a special occasion, my mom would make my grandma's recipe for sesame baked chicken. So I basically took the same kind of idea and then just manipulated a little bit uh, to make it work with mushrooms. And as far as far as the, the development and changing things, I didn't have to change too much. I put a little bit of egg. Typically, you just soak the chicken in like evaporated milk. Uh, I used sour cream, or you could use yogurt, and I whisk an egg yolk into it just to help it tighten a little bit, just to give it a little bit of protein that will coagulate and kind of help it form a crust. And I take a piece of chicken of the woods and dip it in that, and then you roll it in a coating of uh, breadcrumbs and sesame seeds, and, oh, there's a nice, uh, good pinch of dried wild onion leaves. We have lots of ramps here, but people can just leave that out. And then you drizzle it with melted butter, and you bake that sucker until it's golden brown and delicious. And that's all she wrote. And I like it. How does So when, when you look at the texture of the Chicken of the Woods, uh, how does the baking change the texture, if at all? I mean, it just softens it like it would cooking another mushroom nice okay i'm uh, i i've never never had it so i was just curious yeah it's a, the texture is it's similar to chicken kind it's similar to chicken if it tasted like mushrooms <laughs> I, I i'm not uh i don't forage for mushrooms but i feel like chicken of the woods is one of those more popular easily identifiable mushrooms that if you're going to start, that's that's a good one to start with. Is that correct? Absolutely. And I would say that of the hunters that I know, I would say they know morels. And then a few of them will also know chicken of the woods. Uh, I don't see them harvesting other ones. I mean, maybe one or two hunters, I don't know, harvest the hen of the woods. And this is only in Minnesota, kind of, you know, with like old timers that I know. Uh, but a couple of them do know chickens. So the, I think they, they do get, they do get a little bit of, a little bit of play. Not as, not as much as morels here in the Midwest, obviously. Uh, but they're, they're a great mushroom. They're easy to identify. You know, anything, many things growing on a tree that are big like that, the big polypores, chicken of the woods, hen of the woods, ishnoderma, um, Black staining polypore, Berkeley's polypore, uh, they're relatively simple to identify. Chicken of the woods, especially though. Um, I was looking, and we'll kind of loop this back around now since we're on the the topic of hunting and stuff. But the the sochan with the potatoes and venison bacon, like man, that looks phenomenal. Such yes. a great looking dish. Yeah, that was uh, a, a woman left a comment that she called her family called Sochan Bottom Greens. And I thought it was a really cool, I knew exactly why she called them Bottom Greens, why her family did. Uh, she she didn't say in her comment, but I, I know why they call them that. So Sochan is a plant that loves river bottoms. Like it, that's when I go to the river bottoms, I will see as Sochan as far as an eye can see. And she said, we boil potatoes, you boil some Sochan, and then you fry them up, and then you eat them. I was like, that sounds really good. And I think it'd be really good if I put some venison bacon in it. And it is. So that's that. That's the, that's the dish. It's it's a super homey, like, rustic dish. Because I'll put venison bacon in just about anything. That's that's one of my favorite things to make off a of deer. And and the, the sochan is one of those that, that you say comes back up in the fall, and you can get the... the basil leaves yeah and it's not even gonna come back up in the fall because the flower stalk is still gonna be there uh looking at you but it's going to have this rebirth like at the base of the plant you're gonna see like oh the plant looks dead why are there all these flush giant green leaves at the bottom so yeah they're they're like the best my favorite leaves of the whole year you can you can get like four different harvests of greens off the plant in a season wow that's pretty cool and I like the history too with the with the Cherokee as well. So, uh, and it's still it's still sold in farmers markets in the American South. Huh. I've never I've never come across it. Yeah, I don't think. And ever. each and each of those four stages, the plant will taste different. 
Wow. Slightly. It, it varying in intensity as it uh, prepares to flower. So if if you could put it to words in in the the late summer fall period as as the temps cool and those leaves start to emerge at the bottom of the the plant there what what flavor would you be expecting it's like eating collard greens that taste like they were crossed with celery oh man i'm sold and then you cook <laughs> and then it, cooking it in lard uh before yeah. they, they would say cook it in lard typically now it would be pork but before pork they were cooking that in bear fat i mean no doubt about that oh that sounds phenomenal got some bear fat <laughs> i know what's gonna happen if i can get my hands on some okay um let's see i think we got time for one more recipe let me look at it here uh it's the uh huazantles that we uh, have listed nice. the the milkweed bud huazantles am i saying it right yeah perfect uh beautiful dish beautiful beautiful um i love all the sauces and the presentation is just phenomenal on that one yeah so what this is it's it's really a study in wild foods of latin america so okay. what and they basically what's it means it means multiple things and i actually i'm writing a keynote speech uh to give to a few festivals that i'm talking at uh this year ab- about this kind of it's a phenomenon of uh which what zantles are one of the most perfect examples that i know of uh it's a culinary phenomenon around the world so it's kind of like a human constant it's something that we're going to see spontaneously generate in our culinary uh lexicon for lack of a better word like our culinary vocabulary of a culture you're going to have when there's something that people really really like you're gonna have it. You're gonna have one noun that can mean multiple things. Mm-hmm. So what's antle? Uh, the name refers to a type of lamb's quarters, and then it refers to that lamb's quarters, like the the leaf that you would eat. Uh, like wild spinach is one of the names we might use in in America. Uh, but then it also what's antle? The same name also refers to these giant like broccoli on a stick uh see unripe seeds that grow from the top and they're like as long as your arm these like broccoli on a stick oh wow so that's what's on like too and then when you make one of the dishes out of the plant that's also called what's on like so there's a whole there's all kinds of i call it a polynoun Mm -hmm. a noun that means multiple different things uh but you have different examples like this all across the world but with the milkweed buds I don't have what's on lace here, but unripe milkweed flowers have these like little green balls. They're like tight, like a little broccoli, and they're a perfect substitute. So I just cook them like they would the unopened green Wadzantle flowers in Mexico. And I blanch them, and then I steam all the water out of these. It, they look kind of like big fat broccoli buds. And yeah. you chop them all up, and then I mix them with a little bit of egg, and I put a nugget of cheese in the inside and then you make them into a little dumpling and then you dip them in like chili relleno batters like whipped egg uh that you whip till it gets fluffy and you fry them and then you simmer them in guajillo chili sauce and you give them a dollop of sour cream and there's a couple cilantro flowers on there but it's basically a cheese stuffed dumpling made out of weeds that's so cool i and i like in the article that you have uh where you lay out the recipe you have like the step-by-step pictures and it just looks super cool yeah, that was, that was a really fun one. And you can do it with, like, all kinds of different plants. Uh, I have a similar recipe in the book where I make meatballs out of nettles or greens or whatever greens you have. And I put a big nugget of goat cheese in the middle. And you roll them up. And then you fry them and, or saute them, rather. And they're wicked good. A little bit of tomato sauce or whatever. Oh, that's awesome. So um, I will ask... Uh, I mentioned earlier, I think, on Amazon, but are, are there other ways people can get your book? And then what, what are the best ways of people to connect with you if they have, like, questions, comments, just want to share some stories, anything like that? Yeah, so uh, the book is on Amazon, and I don't really make – no one makes money on books unless you self-publish. So it doesn't matter where you get it. Uh, Amazon's fine. Or ordering it from Forager's Harvest, which is Sam's my my mentor sam's website you can order it from them too and that's a good thing to do a lot of people like to do that uh, if you do order on amazon i appreciate a review if you if you enjoy the book 
I think there's like 47 of there. We're all we're all five star, so nice. we're, we're doing all right. Uh, I'm on Facebook and Instagram. Instagram is probably the easiest, and I'm there, but I'm there answering questions on all the platforms and on the website. You know, I moderate a couple hundred comments a week, so I'm pretty accessible, and I try to answer just about every question that I can, if as long as I can make out something in the picture is not too blurry <laughs> perfect uh well I, that's an awesome way for people to connect to you and actually i'm going to go on to uh sam's website right now and or pick up your book um so perfect um excited for that well this is kind of the point in the show where we give everybody the opportunity to do a, a last thought an alibi last comment any anything you want to leave us or the listeners with or ask uh, this this would be the if you have anything to share with us please do well I would say that uh, plants and mushrooms you know they, they, they don't get as much respect as a giant rack but when those times come when you're making tag soup you'd be appreciative of knowing a few plants or a couple mushrooms it makes it so you never go home empty handed I like it. I like that. Never go home empty-handed. It's good stuff. All right, Corey, last thought? I just want to thank Alan for, for coming on. You you have a wealth of knowledge down to the 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 Latin names and everything, so it, it's been great talking with you. I, I've learned a lot on this episode, so um, I am definitely going to to do more research on what I have in my area that I can bring home and eat so thank you and and i'll say this thanks thanks again for coming on and um yeah i i've taken away a lot from this episode as well and and i'm excited to kind of grow grow in that and put some of this knowledge to action so um i would encourage everybody just as if you listen to our episode uh probably like three or four back where we talk about the misconceptions with trash fish and all the other things and i think uh colin captured a quote of mine where i said that uh everybody should get out there and explore your rivers and ponds and lakes and oceans around you and kind of get an understanding of what's there and and how you can eat it and and how you can work it into your local diet I, i would say the same for for mushrooms and plants and any wild edibles like I think if you're a person who wants to grow and appreciate uh, food coming from your local area and the outdoors, that this is an excellent avenue. And just like Alan said, that way you're not going home empty-handed, which is which is cool because sometimes days aren't as sometimes productive as we would like. <laughs> yeah, so uh, it's better to come home with a uh, you know with something than nothing. So that's always good. But uh, after you go over and check out. Uh, Alan's Instagram page, Forger Chef, there, and, and take a peek at his his new book. Uh, make sure that you're following us over at Harvesting Nature, and uh, as always, all these uh, awesome links and recipes and everything that we talked about in this episode will be linked in the show notes. And then uh, whatever podcast platform you're listening to, punch that five star button and uh, leave us a review. Tell us what we're doing wrong, or you know, tell us what we're doing right. And I would say this: thanks, everybody. Have a good night. Thank you.